You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. 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 To the Freedom Pact. My guest on the podcast today is Matt Hancock. Matt Hancock is the MP for West Suffolk and was the former health secretary during the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. This interview was originally scheduled for 60 minutes. We had many questions that we wanted to get through, including questions that our audience and readers asked us to ask. In the short time we were together, I asked Matt about his dyslexia campaign, how working through COVID affected his mental health, Did China influence the UK lockdowns, his battles with Piers Morgan, and his advice to the future health secretary? Enjoy. Matt Hancock, welcome to the Freedom Pack podcast. It's great to be here. So this is first and foremost a personal development podcast, so I think the best place to start. What is the biggest or most important thing you've learned about yourself in the past 12 months? Wow, Uh, in the past 12 months? I tell you, it, it, it's definitely not to be in a hurry. That's the, that's the number one thing, without doubt. You know, um, I've had a lot more time on my hands, obviously, and um, I've spent a lot more time in my constituency, you know, and I absolutely love that, that job. But, you know, I've, I've always been, I've always worked very hard, and I've always been pushing, and now I've got a bit more time for not to be in such a rush. Yeah. Well, your background is an extremely interesting one. And if we had more time, I'd love to dive into all that. But I think the best place to start is you've entered into a, a career where you knew right from the start you were going to face criticism, sometimes even hate. Why would you choose to put yourself through that? Oh, well, it, that's easy, right? And it's, it's been really highlighted, actually, in the last few months with what's going on in uh, Ukraine and Russia. And that's that... You know, the way that we as a democracy move things forward is by having a big debate about it. And part of that debate is to have uh, a row sometimes. Um, and sometimes everybody agrees, as it doesn't happen very often, but, um, but sometimes they do. And, you know, there's some issues I work cross-party on, like my uh, dyslexia campaign. Um, but there's other times when things are highly contentious. And in a democracy, you have a big row about it. Inevitably, the people who have big voices in that debate get criticised. Now, I don't like the personal criticism, but as you say, I you know it comes with the it comes with the territory. And um, I do think it would be far far better if we could have a politics based more on um, respectful disagreement on substantive arguments uh, rather than you know playing the man, not the ball, so to speak. Um, but that's but that but that as but that do, it does come with the territory. I, I think it would be far better if there was less of that, um, and then we might get the better decisions. And it, also, I think it puts off some people from going into politics. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a lot of preconceived ideas or, or stigma around politicians. What is maybe one sort of preconceived idea of a politician that you wish? more people challenge themselves. Oh, I think that uh, um, that politicians are a group apart from society. 
Okay. I mean, because I think the irony is politicians are more embedded in their communities than most people. Um, the, you know, we, we yesterday I was doing a, a, a constituency surgery and just outside Newmarket, you know, dealing with the you know day-to-day -day issues that people have. It's actually a really rewarding part of the job that that hardly ever gets debated and talked about. Um, it's one of those uncontentious bits, right? Because everybody from every party does it. And I think most find it very, very rewarding. So the idea that um, that is portrayed that uh, people who go into politics are therefore different to normal people is just completely uh, wrong. We, we, you know, the body of people you find in parliament are you know, come from all parts of society um, and have all the um, both attributes and uh, flaws that the that all people do. That's we're all human. So, would you say you have a genuine desire to help people? Yeah, I think I think it's one of the reasons I came into politics. But it's also one of the reasons I'm staying in politics. You know, I've been in one of those big jobs with a big duty. Uh, during the pandemic as health secretary um, and one of the rewarding things I've found of being back on the back benches is actually y you get to help people in a more tangible way not just big picture policy you know and setting national um, uh, policy but uh, but you know helping individuals um, and and uh, whether that's so the constituency work, but also the, the, the dyslexia campaign. You know, I'm dyslexic. I want to make life better for dyslexic people, especially, you know, the fact that only one in five dyslexic kids get identified at school, right? And then working with Nadim Zahawi, the Education Secretary, Will Quince, the Minister for this area, we've changed government policy. Um, and that's very rewarding, and that will that will help people. We've got to make it happen on the ground, but that will that will help people, and that I find that I I, I find that very rewarding. Yeah, you mentioned the dyslexia campaign there. Why is that so important to you, and your own experience with dyslexia? Yeah, so it matters to me because I'm dyslexic, and because for me, I only found out about my dyslexia when I was at university, and. The, 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 the being told that I was dyslexic was a, a big moment in my life because it made sense of a load of things that, you know, I was, I was rubbish at languages, uh, but I was good at maths. And I couldn't understand why there was such a big disparity between the two. Um, and it, it made a lot of sense of a lot of things. So it was important, an important moment for me. But it only came when I was 18 and had gone to university. And then I discovered, this is still true. This is what happens. Um, and endless, endless people have come to me and said, oh, I only found out when I was at university, I only found out when I went into a job, um, or I was in my 30s. Um, you know, I was talking to Jackie Stewart, the, you know, the, 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 the racing driver, and he only found out that he was dyslexic when he took his son for a dyslexia assessment. Um, and um, it, you know, this still goes on, and it's got to change. So. So that's it. So it's you know it is. Di I'm I'm doing that work directly because it affected me and my life, and I now want to make sure that doesn't happen to children coming through the system. That everybody gets the support they need from primary school. So what is the the end goal with that? What would have to happen for you to consider that a successful campaign? Yeah. So the 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 central thing I want to see 
is I want to make sure that every child, every child at primary school gets screened so that those who are likely to have dyslexia can get the assessment they need, can get the teaching that they need that works for the way that their brain works, um, and that we get the teacher training that goes alongside that. So it's the universal screening so that teachers have the information that they need and at the same time the teachers need the training they need. That is absolutely central to it. I mean there's other parts of the campaign as well like saying to employers, you know, you should be looking to employ people with, who are neurodiverse because you can get, you know, better decisions are made generally when people who think differently come together. Um, and there's a strand of the work because on, on the criminal justice system because unfortunately you know, a lot of people who are dyslexic and don't learn to read as well as the, you know, enough to function effectively, um, too many of them end up in prison and they need the support. You know, we've literally got a captive audience um, and, and we should be teaching people to read in prison if they haven't learned to read yet and there's a big, big proportion of prisoners in that space. So they're the three strands, business, prison and education, but the education one is at the centre because if you can fix that then you fix it, you fix it for people for life. So how much better or more effective do you feel you work when the work you're doing is meaningful? Oh God, unbelievable, it makes all the difference doesn't it? I mean it, for me it makes all the difference because uh, it's about motivation and you can't throw yourself into something unless you think there's a, a good reason for it. Did that translate during the pandemic, during yeah. those days where I'm sure there were busy days where you had to stay resilient? Did yeah. that help feed that resilience? Yeah. And people used to say to me, you must be really tired. You know, and I was working 18-hour days, but we concentrated hard on getting enough sleep and uh, getting enough getting food, you know, the, the basics, especially in the really tough times. Um, and um, I didn't feel tired. I felt motivated, not because it was a good thing we were facing, but because it was a huge thing that needed to be addressed. And you know, nobody becomes health secretary wanting to be health secretary in a pandemic. Um, but but you know, when the balloon goes up on your watch, you're the you're the one who's got to deal with it. And um, um, and so and so it was. There was a real team spirit uh, amongst the. Uh, the team at the top, there was a real um, motivation to get it right um, and to try to communicate as effectively as possible what you know sometimes quite difficult messages, sometimes quite complicated scientific messages um, and a combination of the politicians and also the brilliant uh, clinical advisors you know people like uh, Chris Whitty, Jonathan Van Tam you know to make sure we both made the decisions as well as we could in the fog of uncertainty but then communicate them. So there was a massive sense of mission, yes. Okay, so we talked about that resilience, we talked about how, how important that was during the pandemic. What did a typical working day look like for Matt Hancock during the pandemic? Well, I, during the heat of the pandemic, um, I more or less worked, yeah, I, I worked about 18 hours. Um, yeah, I got up in the morning, I did everything I could, um, and then I went to bed at night and got up and did the same. I mean, that's the, you know, there were times when even my loo breaks were scheduled in the diary, wow. um, 
and because you know, I'd be in the office in the Department for Health. Um, I'd be in, I'd be in Downing Street uh, talking to the Prime Minister and his team. I'd be in Parliament trying to explain things uh, to Parliament and answering questions from MPs. That was really important that we kept that going all the way through. And you know, the, I, I went between those three venues more or less constantly. It felt. Um, and then, I mean, I'd get out and about as much as I could, but obviously during the lockdowns that wasn't possible. Um, so that was the, you know, and, and th there were just so many different subjects on which decisions were needed. Um, and, you know, the whole thing was, you know, the timetable was programmed down to the last, uh, down to the last minute. I think everyone with a stressful job can relate to this question, but what did your time as health secretary do in a pandemic? Do to your mental health? Did it have an effect at all? Well, no, I, not really. Because I think because of the mission, um, and um, you know, we we had purpose. We sure had purpose. Well, obviously, it was a, a difficult task. But on top of that, in a position that you were in, um, you were of course doing many interviews. There was a lot of media attention. Yeah. Every eye in the nation was on you at times. Yeah. And with certain media outlets, you get a yeah. level of gotcha journalism. Do you? <laughs> How do you manage to navigate something like that when you accept an interview, going into it knowing that they want a specific angle from you? Yeah. Well, there's a particular, you know, there's an art to it. There's an art to it. You know, the first thing, and especially in a pandemic, is you have to answer the questions directly. Yeah. Now obviously this is a you know a debate in politics and there's times when you know the interviewer specifically is trying to get you to say something because they knew it, know it'll create a fuss and headlines and you don't and you don't want to say it uh, or you don't think it um, but the in a pandemic it was slightly different it was like it, it was more public health communications it was about you know how do we communicate what's going on about something that affects everybody's lives so in a way, it wasn't the normal politics. It wasn't politics. You know, it wasn't party politics. Um, it was it was public health communications. So, so during the worst bits, that that natural tendency dissipated. This is a question I've longed for the answer to, and you might oh, yeah. be the perfect person to ask. Why would anyone accept an invitation to an interview with Piers Morgan? Oh, because 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 I respect the viewers. That's why. That's the long and short of it. Uh, you know, a lot of people in the morning, uh, you know, watch BBC Breakfast or listen to Virgin Radio. A lot of people uh, watch uh, GMB, and I, I needed to communicate with them. It was my, it was my job. It was my duty. Now, Piers, you know, has his views, and yeah. but that that was my that was my job. So, obviously. When this first came, it was New Year's Day, the news yeah. started to come out of China. Yeah. What was your initial reaction? Did you think that it could possibly be as big as it, as it was? Um, well, so it, it was so uncertain at first. That's the word I use, uncertain. Yeah, I, I, as, as you know, I heard about it on New Year's Day um, and asked questions about it and we uh, had a meeting about it that week. Um, and um, but it was uncertainty. That was that was the we, we knew so little. 
And when did the severity of the situation really hit home for you? Uh, pretty soon, but it was uh, especially after the, um, especially after we'd seen the scenes in Italy. Mm. You know, that was that was when we really knew that this was this was coming. Now, being in a position right at the start, there's very little data to go off. Yeah. Obviously, the data that was given to you. How do you begin to navigate that and use that in a decision-making? Oh, the data was absolutely brilliant yeah. by the end. Yeah. yeah. Basically, we started with nothing at yeah. all, and we built some really strong data tools and analytical tools, and we also put a lot of effort into how that was presented uh, to try to understand it as quickly as possible, and we also put a lot of effort into how to publish that in a way that it would be accurately understood. I think the vaccine project actually was the sort of the best example of this um, because it came, you know, the vaccine obviously only got rolled out um, just under a year after the pandemic struck. Um, so from the start of the vaccine rollout, we had a really good data underpinning, both for analytical reasons and for operational purposes. So the data was absolutely critical. Um, and the answer to how, how is, you know, that we put a lot of effort in and we brought in people who had great data experience. Did the Chinese lockdown impose oh, yeah. the UK's hand? Well, obviously we saw that lockdown, um, but the but the real impact actually was when it was uh, was obviously so big in Italy. Um, that's when we really knew it was coming to the UK uh, for sure, and, um, and 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 we saw different ways to manage it. Um, but and there was a big debate about all the different ways around the world. But I wouldn't single out any one country. So obviously you had two sides of the public criticising. Some say oh, yeah. they weren't soon enough, yeah. didn't lock down soon enough. Some say you're taking our freedoms away. Yeah. How do you strike the balance? Well, that is the right word, balance, right? It, 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 but ultimately, you know, you've got to look at the data, you've got to listen to the scientists, and you've got to do what you think is right. And sometimes the broad swathe of opinion is going to be with you, and sometimes not. But in something as big as that, where as many lives are at stake, your goal is to get these decisions as right as you can in unprecedented circumstances without much data. You know, that's the, that, and, and, and of course people, that will be scrutinized and there'll be debate about it. Um, and then the job again, coming back to it, is to then to explain to the public why you've taken the decision that you have. But balance is a critical thing. Okay, so we're short on time. The last question I'll ask you, what is your advice to a future health secretary oh, yeah. who may find themselves in the middle of a public health crisis? Well, the number one thing that I think is vital is that this, the inquiry leads to a, you know, a manual on the shelf, if you like, a, a, you know, that people, this, the person in my shoes next time, and there will be a next time, can take this manual off the shelf, and it's like, this is how we did it last time. And there'll be changes, of course there will, and hopefully some of the technologies will be improved and there'll be things like a testing system ready to go, which didn't exist at all, effectively. Um, but the critical thing is to have that, that, um, is to have that manual, because there's no one answer to your question. There's, you know, hundreds of pages of answers to in different bits. Um, and, and, you know, the, each pandemic will be different, but I hope that we can we can have those lessons learned okay Matt Hancock thank you so much for joining me on the Freedom Pack podcast today great stuff thank you very much for having me on